You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. I'm not sure about you, but I love morning routines. Uh, really just routines in general. If, if things are getting, I don't know, out of routine, I, I tend to get more anxious and more stressed. And that typically happens uh, in our church office. You know, I'll come in the morning, you know, I'll make a cup of coffee, I'll get started for my day, maybe do a little reading to start out with. Uh, by lunchtime, I, I eat a lunch that my loving wife has probably packed for me. And then by 1.30 or maybe 2 o'clock, this might be the case with you, but I hit a wall. You know, I just, I hit a slump that is so hard to get out of. And uh, I, I find myself just having a hard time concentrating. I'm just tired. I need my second cup of coffee. Is, that any, is anyone else with me on that? You just need a, an afternoon cup of coffee. Well, that's me. I, I walk in and I grab a K-cup. And I stick it in our K-cup and I, I have my coffee within 30 seconds. And with office life, you know, there's routines that overlap. And, and really, they're... I think most of us end up getting a cup of coffee at some time in the afternoon. And I've come to realize after working with Paul, Pastor Jerry, Pastor Zach, is there are two types of people in our office. There are reasonable people, and then there's someone else. All right, for me, I walk in, and I take my cake up. I stick it in, and I'm done. I have my coffee within 30 seconds, maybe a minute if it has to warm up a little bit. There's someone else in our church office, I'm not going to say who, but he's not here today, so, um, that it takes him a little bit longer to make his cup of coffee. And, you know, I thought I could tell you about that, but I feel like it'd be better if I showed you. So I, uh, sorry, I grabbed his, uh, his coffee making set here. And you can see, this is no simple set here. And I'm sorry, if you guys like high-end coffee, good for you. Um, but uh, here we have his nice uh, thermos here to heat up the water. And then we have uh, his, of course, his Corvus coffee here. You know, only the highest quality. His, uh, his pour-over, you know, it's got to be a pour-over. And then well, some of my favorite aspects is he, he has a scale here where he weighs all the coffee grounds before he actually makes his coffee. And then uh, my favorite part, though, and I can always tell when Pastor Zach is in the, uh, in, the, in the kitchen making coffee is, I'm not sure if you've heard, seen this before, but he has his little, uh, his hand grinder, all right? And so this goes on here, and, uh, you know, I'll hear him, you know, walking around the office, and you just hear this. I'm like, and if you've ever wondered where Pastor Zach gets his really buff arms from, it's just because he's doing this all day. But no, like, he, he takes the time and he takes meticulous effort to make his cup of coffee. For me, I don't take the time to do that. For me, it's not worth it. All right? It's like, I want my coffee. I'll, I'll get back to my work and I'll be on my way. Let me stick this back in here. Uh, we, we do this with everything in our life. You know, we work out. We take time to work out. That's uncomfortable because we feel that it's worth it. We feel that... If I do this, I'm going to get a specific outcome that I want. And for me, I could tell you about certain things that I do that you might find a little strange. But we do this all the time. See, worth 
worth is really, it implies a sacrifice. It's giving up something and it's applying and it's denoting a value to something or some process that we do. And at the end of everything that we do, we want to be able to say that it was worth it. This can be for the smallest decisions that you make, like how you make your coffee. Or it can be a big decision, like whether you want to retire or if you want to move. Like you have to weigh the costs and benefits. Is it worth it for me to take this step of action? But as we evaluate every as- everyday aspects of life, there's one thing that surpasses everything else. And that is our opinion on the worthiness of God. The worthiness of God is not found in some trade or exchange, but in the very position and nature of who God is. And so the question that I have for you and my basis for this whole message is, is he worthy of glory? Is God worthy of glory? The worthiness of God, I believe, is of the greatest importance both in how we understand it and how we respond to it. When I say glory, there could be a couple different approaches to it. On one hand, I mean that it is God's exalted, majestic state. And on the other, it is our action of giving him glory. That is to give him all honor and praise in everything that goes on. It is both worthiness of position and the honor and praise that comes with that position. Is he worthy of glory? Let me go ahead and answer that question for you. And this is going to be our basis for here on out is, God is worthy of glory, so you must exalt him. And God is worthy of glory, so you must exalt him. You must understand who God is, what he has done. You must see that God is above all, And before all, and you must respond appropriately. Essentially, my goal this morning is that we would have an exalted view of God and that he would truly be exalted in our hearts. That he would be the Lord of our hearts. And we will take a look at this throne room picture that John describes for us in Revelation and see God's glory on full display. As I've, as I've meditated on the subject and over my few years of ministry, I believe that the glory of God is foundational to everything that we do and every decision that we make. It must be central. But I fear that in our lives, the glory of God and our understanding of it is flawed. I think it falls short of what it should be. We either have an incorrect view of God that causes us to live in ignorance of what God wants for us, or we simply ignore the truths of who God is, happy to live a shallow, worldly life. So my desire this morning is really not to plunge the depths of each attribute of God, but take a look at the big picture, to look at this essential truth, and I want to show you How plain it is that the glory of God is both described, articulated, and demanded of each and every one of us. So in order to accomplish that, we must first see that God's worth is clearly declared. God's worth is clearly declared. 
This past Monday, my friend Tyler had and I, we drove up to near Leadville to hike a 14er. It was, I mean, it was just a beautiful drive. And let me tell you, it was a crazy day. You can ask Tyler about it later, but um, you know, we, it was a beautiful drive in, just beautiful peak, clear day, nice and warm. On the way back, a deer tried to stop us in our tracks and you know, that stranded us out there for a couple of hours. It was, a, it was a crazy day, but I loved every second of it. Um, before we, we even got to the 14er, we were driving there, and it's about, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning. The sun is just, you know, cresting over the mountains. It's, it has that nice orange glow on the horizon. And we were just elaborating on how beautiful it was, how beautiful God's creation was as we were driving into uh, to this mountain. I, we, we pulled off to the side or we were, were driving, and Tyler was like, hey, you want to take a picture of this awesome scene? And I was like, Tyler, I, I feel like it doesn't do the justice that I want it to do. And I'm sure you've already, you've been there before, whether you've been to the Grand Canyon or some other amazing point on creation, where you're like, a picture just doesn't do it justice. And I, I took a picture either way. And, you know, it's, here it looks like it's so far away and so small. But at the moment, it was so beautiful. It was so breathtaking. And we got up to the, the top of the mountain. We were able to see even more, and, and this picture is awesome, but it doesn't grasp the point of, if you, you just had to be there. You had to see it for yourself. And as we, as we look, and we just read through this first part of Revelation chapter 4, I, just, I feel like John is doing the same thing. He was like, it's so amazing. The throne room of God is so grand, it's so magnificent, and I'm trying to describe it to you. And it just it's hard to get the full picture of what John is seeing here. He walks in and he, he sees a throne and it's lightnings and thundering, a rainbow. It's, he describes it with stone. It's like emerald, jasper, topaz. He does this throughout the book of Revelation. I feel like John is just trying to say, you, just, you have to be there. But yet we still find this picture of God's worth being declared above everything. And despite the struggles of our human words, you know, they were, they're the best they could ever be because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there is no doubt that John has seen what is happening. And John has seen the glory of God. And his descriptions show us that God is worthy of all glory and praise because of God's nature and mighty works. Essentially, God fits the qualifications of glory. And here John establishes the worthiness of God as he describes three declarations that are made by those in the heavenly throne room. First of all, God's worth is clearly, excuse me, clearly declared because God is worthy because he is Lord God Almighty. Again, in verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John is not not alone in this majestic scene. Here we get this description of living creatures, which are a little odd, to say the least. Eyes around and within, appearance of like an eagle, a lion, a calf, a man. But though our attention is taken to this picture... It's not the focus. The focus John wants us to see is the message that they are bringing. 
The message is a message of worship. It is a declaration of praise to the one on the throne. And in this brief declaration, one commentator noted that there are three attributes of God that are listed in this brief, in this brief worship to God. These, these angels, these creatures, they worship God because he is holy. They, they say it three times, holy, holy, holy. And this is the highest description given to God. It separates us from him. The fact that he is so much greater, so much more above us, so much separate from everything that we are. He is completely apart from sin and everything that goes against his nature. He is holy. But he is also omnipotent. He is Lord God Almighty. He is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot do, nothing he cannot accomplish. He is powerful beyond measure. Then finally, it says that who was and is and is to come. God has no beginning, no end. Our minds cannot comprehend the very nature of who he is besides what is given to us in Scripture. He is unlike anything or anyone. He is so much greater. I love how these attributes, they, they also come into play in the rest of the book of Revelation as God inputs and demands his holiness and his judgment on all things. But God is worthy because he is Lord God Almighty. Because he's powerful. He can do whatever he pleases. And the next, uh, the next aspect is God is worthy because he is creator. And it's kind of like an offshoot of his almighty power. But this really denotes something even bigger. Look at verse 11 with me. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. You know, I'm sure as kids, you know, we, we all got in trouble at one point in time with our parents. And I'm not sure if your parents ever, you know, came back to the phrase where they, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. All right. I'm not sure if you ever heard that. My parents thankfully did not go to that level of rebuke, but it's still, it, it highlights something that is kind of ingrained in us. That when we create something, we have authority over that thing. The act of creation displays God's almighty power, but the bigger meaning behind this is that God has brought everything in this world to existence. existence. There's not one thing that he has not formed, molded, or sustained. We are God's masterpiece. His pot of clay designed for not just anything, a specific purpose of giving God glory. We are the creation. It does not make sense to glory in ourselves or to glory in any other thing besides our almighty God. Paul highlights the flawed thinking of the Romans in their reprobate minds in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22 through 25, which says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their flesh to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. These Roman reprobates were worshiping idols, images of created beings, whether that was animals or mankind. 
They were placing creation at the center. And really they were placing themselves at the center. So much so, excuse me, we cannot replace our creator God with anything less than who he is. Anything else is rebellion. It's idolatry. Even Colossians 1, 16 and 17, a passage we're familiar with says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. We look around us. We drive into this church. We see the mountains. We see the grass. We see the trees. We see this building. Everything is created by the hand of God. So we must exalt God. We must exalt him above, ev- above everything else because creation in and of itself does the same. David exclaimed, the heavens declare the glory of God. And if creation is constantly giving glory to the, all- the almighty God, so should we. God is worthy because he is Lord God Almighty. God is worthy because he is creator. But lastly, from this passage in Revelation, we see that God is worthy because he is Savior. And this actually jumps into chapter 5. So John is in the middle of this awesome throne room experience where he's just describing everything that's going on. Lightning, the thunders, it's incredible. But he doesn't know the half of what's about to happen and what he's about to see. And just like that, a point of concern pops up. One, one angel comes up with a scroll um, that's in God's hand. He says, who is worthy to open and break the seals of this scroll? And everyone sits in silence. John is heartbroken because who is worthy to open up this scroll? Until one stands forward. It's the Lamb. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes the scroll, and at this point, the song that heaven is singing changes. In Revelation 5, verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. He goes down to verse 12. Their new song, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and blessing. God is worthy because he is Savior. And the addressment here changes to that this is the Lamb that they are praising now. Christ is worthy. All of heaven joins in with this song. Yes, God is worthy because of his position, because of his power. But the pinnacle, the climax is not creation, but it's redemption. The fact that we have all been saved by Jesus Christ, that he has paid the price for us, he has ransomed our souls, is why we give God glory. God is not some distant being pulling the strings behind the scenes. He's not just that. He is a God that deeply loves us. And he sent his son to pay the greatest price for us. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus humbled himself to become a man. He gave up the glory of heaven for us and humbled himself to the cross where he took the sin of all mankind. 
Jesus suffered for us. He goes on to explain in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and, at, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is exalted of all, above all because of his work, because of his death on the cross, so much so that we will all bow the knee before him. But did you notice the phrase, the last little detail of that address, it says, to the glory of God the Father. In the midst of redemption, God gets the glory. God gets the credit. He gets the praise. He gets the honor. It was his plan before the foundation of the world, and it is his love that condescends to mankind. This is worthiness. This is priceless value. The Bible doesn't shy around this. It's clearly declared. God is worthy of glory, so you must exalt him. I'm sure you're, you're listening to this, and you say, I know that God is all-powerful. You know, I know that God is creator. I, mean, I went to Sunday school. I know that God saved me. Why do, I, why do I dive into these things? Why do I elaborate on these truths? I want to take a moment here to tell you why these are so important. We, t- we talk about these things, one, because we must have an, a, an appropriate view of who God is, an accurate view of who God is. When I was in high school, in our youth group, we went through a program called EE. Has anyone ever heard of that, Evangelism Explosion? It's, it's pretty old. And it's kind of like the exchange that Jeff Musgrave has kind of developed in recent years. Kind of, it just teaches you how to share the gospel. And in youth group, we would, we would meet maybe on Tuesday nights, and we'd go through this kind of curriculum. And we'd be quizzed. we have to memorize illustrations and stories. But I remember one aspect about it. One of the things that you had to touch on was people's misconceptions about God. And they would say, well, some people, they have the the idea or the conception that God is maybe like a grandfather, you know, just sitting on his rocking chair. You know, he's just a nice guy. He's a loving guy. And if you mess up, he's just going to pat you on the head and just send you on the way. That's some people's uh, view of God, maybe. I hope not here. But maybe they go to the other extreme where they view God as maybe a police officer, maybe setting like a speed trap where he's just waiting around the corner trying to catch you if you trip up. So there's two different extremes there. But we know that if we're going to worship God, if we're going to worship him appropriately, we must understand exactly who he is. Yes, he is a God that loves us dearly. But he is also a God that hates sin and despises it. And I fear that, you know, we might not go to these extremes, but in our church culture, in the United States, we often, we often just lessen God a little bit. We devalue him a little bit. Have you ever been on maybe YouTube or online somewhere, Facebook? And sometimes you'll, you'll see these videos, maybe especially with us being so close to Rocky Mountain National Park, and you'll see these tourists. And they... Uh, they think that because they're in nature or they, because it's a cute little animal that they can get as close as they want to. 
I'll see these videos where there's this giant, like, eight-foot-tall moose, and they're trying to get as close as they can just to get a picture or a selfie with, and if, you know, hopefully not, they might try to touch it. And you'll go and you'll see the comment section, and they, people are blasting them, saying, are you, are you so foolish that you're going to try to get this close to a wild animal that could attack you and, you know, kill you in an instant? It's, uh, they're foolish people. But sometimes I feel like, to a degree, we come to God the same way. That we don't realize that God is not just a cute and cuddly animal. He is massive. He is great. He is magnificent, majestic, glorious. And if we truly, if we truly view him as that, we will, we will treat him appropriately. We will keep our distance to keep the illustration going. So what is your opinion of God? Is he elevated where he should be? Because one, we must have an appropriate view of God, but also we must elevate God internally. So the first part of that is that God is worthy of glory, so you must exalt him. He must be Lord of your life. And this is really the conversion of head knowledge to heart belief. And there are some in this room where God is not exalted in your heart. There's a king of your heart, but it's yourself. God is just an afterthought in your daily life. God is just an interruption before your meals. And maybe he's just an inconvenience so that you can't have a two-day weekend to go enjoy what you really want to do. And I think if God is the ruler of our hearts, our, our whole view of life will change. When we choose not to exalt God as he should be, we are acting in clear rebellion and clear adultery. Sorry, not adultery, idolatry. The devil, the, the demons, they, they believe and they tremble. But what separates us from them is that God is exalted. And we follow him. And you might be thinking here, Addison, you don't know my heart. You don't know what I view about God. And you're right, I can't judge anyone's heart in here. But I fear that as Christians, as a church, we might not be exalting God as he should be. I would ask, I would beg you to ask the question, would you say that we are a church on fire for God? Are we a church that is on fire to to reach our community? To reach souls with the gospel? To come to this Sunday morning service and worship is the top thing on our priority list? Sometimes I have a hard time saying yes. And that's not a direct rebuke on anyone. It's just, if we're going to need, if we're going to have revival in our church, then this is where we have to start. Sometimes I feel one week we have 300 people here at church. The next week we have 245. Sometimes I go and stand out in the lobby after church, and there's so many who just rush out the door right after church. And I know many of you have excuses to miss a church service or to somewhere you need to go. But all I'm asking is evaluate your own heart. Is God exalted? The fact that he is almighty, omnipotent, eternal God, creator of the universe and savior of our souls. He should have a little bit different place in our hearts. 
So I beg you to evaluate. Are you on fire for God? Are you, evalu- are you exalting him as you should? And I take the time to make this distinction because if this is not settled in your heart, if this is not a goal, the rest of the message is not for you. The rest of the message can't apply to you because of the rest of this is our response to an exalted God. If God is viewed correctly and exalted appropriately, there will be an, an appropriate response. And that response is glory. God's glory is clearly required. So I mentioned at the beginning that there are two distinctions here with glory. One, it is God's exalted majestic state. But for us to glorify God is our response of honor and praise and worship to him. Point number one was to look at the position of glory. It's a matter of belief. But point number two is our response. If God is holy, creator, savior, then that comes with an appropriate action. In fact, it's not really just appropriate, it's demanded. All the honor, all the praise, all worship is demanded by God because God wants the glory for himself. God knows that he is, glor- he is glorious. God knows that he is worthy of glory. And he demands it of us. Our actions and the choices that we make reflect our belief in who God is and what he has done. Everything that we, that we are is a reflection of our beliefs. And if we are to glorify God, we will have to give certain things in sacrifice to God. Because remember, if God is worthy, we will have to give up something. Worth implies a sacrifice from one side of the party because of the value of the other. So, how do we give God glory? What do we have to offer? Our first sacrifice is our sacrifice of worship. From the moment John entered the heavenly throne room, worship was the primary focus. And it's the same model that's reflected in Isaiah, where the the seraphim constantly cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's one thing that I know for sure about heaven, and that's that there will be a lot of worship going on. Why? Because they're in the very presence of their glorious God. They're seeing God firsthand and are rightly worshiping him. They saw God, they feared him, and they responded with fervent worship. A biblical fear, a biblical understanding of God brings worship. If that's the attitude of the angels who don't even experience salvation like we do, what should our response be? We have seen the greatness of our God. We have seen it in creation and salvation. Our first response should be to worship our God. Worship of God alone must be our heart's greatest desire. Worship is not just coming to church and singing songs. Worship is a posture of the heart that is submitting and elevating God because of who he is and what he has done. Worship comes from our hearts and it starts there. It's an attitude of submission and it is expressed through prayer, through music, through giving, through the reading of the word of God. These are all forms of worship. And it's why we're gathered here today. Do you recall Zach's message from last week. I actually missed it 
um, because I was over in Children's Church last week. Um, but I got to go back and I got to listen. And by the way, when I was in Children's Church last week, they hate me. I'm not joking. I think I got booed when I walked into Children's Church last week. Because, a little side here, when I walk in, every week they get, everyone gets a piece of candy. All right? And so when I come in there, being the, the big bad youth pastor, I, uh, I say, the best girl and the best guy get three pieces of candy, not just one. And they hate me for it. They say, you know, I, yeah, they, they, they cannot stand that. But because I was there last week, I got to come back and I got to, uh, to, worship, to listen to the, to the message uh, um, on the, the Google Drive doc that I created. And I knew all the content that was going to be on that message last week. I, Zach had, we had walked through it together and I was still kind of blown away with it all. I was excited, like, man, I want to go, I want to be a part of this church. Like, I am a part of this church, you know. It, it was awesome to see Zach's vision, our vision for our church, and, and hear him just articulate it so finely. But if you remember, he had a couple different kind of pillars of vision for this next year. You guys remember the first one that was on there? One of the first ones was, we gather and worship. And if that's not the very first one, I'm sorry, I was listening to it online. So, But we gather and worship. It's one of the, mo- the core aspects of the local church. We gather to praise God for his mighty acts we as the body of Christ are corporately declaring our worship to God. That's incredible. God has given us the local church to become more like him, to fellowship together, to pray, to share the gospel. But God desires most of all that we glorify his name as a church. We must worship God. And God must be the sole object of our worship in everything else that we do. It's so easy to take our worship and bring it to other things, to entertainment, to sports, whatever it might be, anything can take the place of God. But our worship must be for God alone. Worship is the harsh response to the grandeur of God's awesome nature. But the second sacrificial response is our sacrifice of love. Our sacrifice of love In the book of Daniel, a story that we've heard since growing up, we see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as these uh, these young boys are there, they get get thrown into a pretty big trial right off the bat. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, who's one of the most prideful people, decides to build a gigantic image to himself. And he gathers all these people around and he says, at the, uh, at the sound of all the instruments, everyone must bow down and worship this image. And of course, he, he tries and everyone bows down except those three boys. He says, oh, we'll try it again. Maybe you didn't hear all my instruments. And he does it again and they all bow down and yet still we have three boys who are taking a stand for God. And we know how that story ends. They get thrown into the fiery furnace Uh, Christ even makes an appearance in the flames. They took a stand for God. But the point I want to make here is that anyone, any person of great power and influence can demand worship of someone. But it takes something much deeper to demand love. Love 
is doing what is good for someone else, really at a sacrifice. And that is the beauty of God's character, the fact that he loves us. And if I ask many of you in this room, what is your favorite attribute about God? Many of you would say that it's his love, the fact that he saved me. He loved me so much to pull me out of my sin. We all grew up memorizing John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves us. And when this world batters us down and discourages us, we're never brought to true despair because God loves us. And John wrote, we love him because he first loved us. We see the great acts of God, his great character, and we have no response but to love God. And to love God is really to treasure him above all else as we've had as our theme for this year. Is that we are devoting all of our affections to the person of Jesus Christ and to the entire Godhead. This is a removal of the affections for this world and a placement of our true desires towards God. It's hard to do. I know Pastor Zach just spoke on Colossians chapter 3 not too long ago. But how often do we take our affections and put them on the things of this world, the money that we have, the possessions that we own? And it robs God of what he deserves. Now, if you are married, you will know that love that is never expressed with actions is not looked kindly upon. I can go to my wife and I can tell her, I love you, you know, five times a day, hundred times a day. But if that trash is still not taken out for that, she's reminded me of for like 350 times, whatever it might be, she's not going to feel very loved. Love demands an action to go along with it. Yes, love is the appropriate response to the character of God, but it must be included with our sacrifice of service. John 14 and verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If we worship God, if we truly love him, we will live for him. We will give everything to please him. We will be faithful servants and obedient to our good and faithful master. In fact, the Bible is full of references to the fruit of the inward change that occurs in us. Some try to justify God's forgiving nature and love as an excuse to stay in sin, to live how they want to live, but that's blatantly unbiblical. Over and over again, God highlights the change that occurs in our lives because of our new faith. Another passage highlights this more than Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, a verse I'm sure you're all familiar with. says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And this passage is specifically referring to salvation. Paul has just elaborated on the great benefits and theology and doctrine of of salvation. But he says here that because of this, we're to sacrifice ourselves to give everything for God. This passage stands in stark contrast to Romans chapter 1 that we looked at a few minutes ago. These reprobate individuals were giving all the glory, all their sacrifices to to gods that did not exist. They were not real. They were just images built with human hands. But here Paul says in this transitionary passage, 
give your lives as a sacrifice to God. We are to present our bodies as holy and acceptable. That means that we are, there's supposed to be outward change. Everything we do now is for the glory of God. We don't do things for our own glory or our own honor, our own praise. All of it goes to God. <clears throat> when I worked at the wilds, you know, I'm, I really appreciated Gabe's message this morning, his just recounting of God's, God's work this past summer. When I worked there, I would get to meet with various people while I was there. And they would, they would counsel me and give me some advice. And one thing that I heard a couple times, it was an illustration. It was an illustration of how we live our lives. They would say, you know, most of the time we tend to look at our life like a pie chart. You know, where <clears throat> this is just, I just threw some arbitrary items up there. But, you know, we have some time, like 25% for family, 20% for work, 5% for fun, but 50% for God. And that's how we tend to divide up our life sometimes, in the way that we view it. We say, oh, look, I'm giving so much of my time to God. But this is an incorrect way of viewing the glory of God. Instead, everything is God's. Our whole lives are God's. This whole world is God's. And I actually put a little dot right there, if you can kind of see it. That's supposed to resemble me, all right? Uh, that's supposed to resemble that pie chart I had a second ago. And if I could make it infinitely smaller, I would. But the very fact that this is God's world, we are just living in it. And so all the fun that I have, all my relationships that I have, all the things that I pursue, it is all a part of God's world. And it is my obligation to glorify God in everything that I do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every action, every thought, every desire is to bring glory to God. It's to bring glory to God. What does that mean? It means that we are reflecting the very character of God in everything that we do. If we go to the store and we interact with the cashier, are we reflecting a God that is loving, that is caring, that is the God of this universe? Or are we portraying a God of ourselves or something that we want to promote? God must be glorified. He demands it. And we covered a lot of material today, so I, I believe it's important that we come back and we put a few of these pieces together. Because God's glory is clearly required. And I say that because I hope that if we, as we've gone through this, you're seeing a theme or maybe some familiar or teaching tools, if, if that's the right way. A few weeks ago, Pastor Zach introduced to us a tree. All right, let me back up here. He introduced to it, this is my tree. I think my tree is better than Pastor Zach's. But um, this is my tree. And again, if you remember, that it starts with the roots. The roots are our beliefs. As we have beliefs, they're going to affect our desires, our wants. And eventually, they're going to affect our actions, the fruit. So he, he's done this with different areas where maybe for, you know, anger. Where our belief is that we want to be, you know, 
We believe a situation is unjust. And so I want things to be the way I want them to be. And so I'm going to get angry because of that. And so on and so forth. And we produce sinful fruit. But this also works in the positive direction. Because every belief that we have is really a reflection of our belief in God. If we believe that God is not in control, if we believe that God doesn't supply our needs, we're going to get anxious. We're going to get worried. But if we believe that God is in control, if we believe that God is sovereign over all, that, that affects our wants and our desires, and it will affect our actions. So if we looked at what we've looked at today, our belief is that God is worthy. That God is above all. He is better than all things. If God is worthy, that's going to create certain desires in our heart. That's going to create a desire to love God, to worship him. Because remember, worship is primarily a heart posture. All right, we're going to desire those things. And then finally, we're going to have service to him. This is going to be through acts of worship, but through just living in a way that glorifies God, that brings all the credit back to him. If our beliefs about God are secure, if they're correct, and if we exalt him as he should, they will produce correct biblical desires and thus good biblical fruit. So, are you accurately and intentionally believing in the worthiness of God? Are you exalting him as you should be? Because God is worthy of glory, so you must exalt him. This truth is foundational. It is a core belief that produces so much good fruit in our hearts. And I believe if we want to be a church that honors God, that is on fire for him, we're going to have to come back to this belief. That we're going to have to come back to this point where we each exalt God as he should be. We're each going to have to ask ourselves, is he worthy of glory? Who are you glorifying? What are you glorifying? If something else has become so exalted in your heart as to challenge the glory of God, there needs to be some confession this morning. There needs to be some repentance. Is he worthy of glory? Is God worth it? Is God worth a life of love, of worship, of service? May God convict our hearts and draw us close to him this morning. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, Lord, we are blown away by your character, by your very nature. And Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have lessened our view of you, for the ways that we have not exalted you as we should have. Lord, may, may we come back to a right heart attitude, a right belief, and may we worship you appropriately this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.